Hello, everyone, and welcome uh, to this first ever Lib Dem podcast live. Thank you all for being there and seeing all your lovely smiling faces. I hope you're all doing well. Um, glad to see you're all muted, um, but don't worry, there are plenty of opportunities going forward because this is the, uh, the first in a series of fringe-type events that we're going to be hopefully having throughout the year. This is a pilot, so it all depends on how good you are, depends on how well this goes. But this is an idea to try and keep supporters across the country. I know we've got people from abroad as well tuning in today uh, to keep members engaged to keep them involved uh, and so we've got a fantastic lineup for you today um and we my co-host i should say is uh, lib dem party president and editor of the liberal democrat newswire it's mark pack so mark is in the room somewhere he's just coming in now um we but we also have an absolutely brilliant panel i don't think we could get a, a better panelist because it's about cooperation working with other parties and and also, we can't avoid it, dealing with coalition as well. What lessons have we picked from it? But it is about working with other parties. Um, and so they include, we've got Duncan Brack from the Lib Dem History Group. Welcome, Duncan. Uh, we have, uh, she was uh, due to come, so I don't know if Polly McKenzie has actually turned up yet. We are not sure, but um, but we definitely have the wonderful Kirsty Williams, who's our, been our brilliant Lib Dem Minister of Education in the Welsh Government and has been in the Senate since 1999, I think, Kirsty. Is, uh, is that correct? That's correct. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for the invitation. We'll start off with a brief question to our, our main panellists, and we'll start off with Kirsty, because um, Kirsty, you're you're a, a currently a Lib Dem minister working with another party in Wales, with the Welsh uh, Labour Party. So, what have been the positives? You know, what have been the upsides of Lib Dems not being a one party in control and actually being part of the Welsh Parliament and making decisions in it? Well, John, you've just summed it up. The best part of it has been, rather than talking about a, a Liberal Democrat vision for Wales, actually beginning to implement a Liberal Democrat vision for Wales. Uh, and to be able to do that, uh, especially, but not exclusively, in an area of policy which means so much to us as a party in the field uh, of education. Uh, so it was great, uh, you know, when uh, I was a um, leader of the Welsh Liberal Democrats or a, a backbencher in the Liberal Democrats, you know, trying to, you know, cajole, persuade, uh, and sometimes if the arithmetic was right, you know, uh, demand action. But to be part of an administration uh, which has given me free reign uh, to pursue a Liberal Democrat education policy agenda has been amazing. So what does that mean, though, for people, for children and young people in Wales? It means that we have doubled the people, the pupil premium for our youngest children. It means that we now have a, uh, a pupil development grant access scheme that helps families with the costs of education. Uh, we have seen uh, an improvement in the outcomes that children are uh, are achieving in schools. We've got the largest single uh, investment in school and college buildings since the 1960s. We've radically reformed our student finance programme, which means that the average Welsh student this year will get a grant, a grant, not a loan, a grant of seven and a half thousand pounds. And it doesn't matter whether you're an undergraduate or a postgraduate, whether you're full-time or part-time, the Welsh government supports you financially uh, in your studies. So for me, the best thing has been about, rather than talking about what Liberal Democrats want to do, it's doing what Liberal Democrats do. And Duncan, you've kind of want to look at your point of view from a historical point of view. And 
and about cross-party cooperations and questions regarding how we work with others. What What's your take, because you go, obviously, because of your role in, with the Lib Dem History Group, about the right going right back to Paddy Ashdown's time and that approach that we had then with Paddy Ashdown and, and, and Tony Blair at the time. So what are your takes on it? Well, we go a bit back... Uh back a bit further than Paddy Ashdown's time in the Lib Dem History Group, I ought to emphasise. Um, but yes, I think the um, if we're talking about cooperation between parties, obviously coalition, cooperation after an election in government is an important element. We have, I think, Kirsty's very positive experience in Wales, and we have a much more mixed experience in the Westminster Parliament 2010-2015. But uh, the other side of the story is cooperation between the parties in between parties in opposition. And I think there is a lot to be learned, particularly in our current position, from the uh, the Blair Ashdown project, as it was called, from 92 to 97. And the people who are interested in this, I wrote about it at uh, a bit more length in the book called The Alternative, which was edited by Lisa Nandy, Caroline Lucas, and Chris Bowers, who's a, a Lib Dem candidate, um, back in 2016, I think. Um, so if you remember the position, many of you will have lived through this, so you'll be familiar with the position. 1992, the fourth defeat for the Labour Party in a row. For our side, it wasn't so bad. We'd survived the post-merger kind of catastrophic period, um, but we hadn't done particularly well. Tories back again for the, I said, the fourth election in a row. Um, so Paddy Ashdown uh, tries to explore the possibility of cooperation with Labour, and that's in the long tradition of um, cooperation between the non-conservative parties in the UK. Joe Grimmond had tried it. We tried it with the SDP uh, and the Alliance. Uh, we tried it with the Lib Lab Pact in the 70s. So it's not like it was new. Um, John Smith wasn't interested. Labour leader at the time, after Kinnock resigned, after the 92 election, wasn't interested. But he died two years later. 1994, Tony Blair um, gets elected and is much more open to this kind of thing. It's perhaps a bit of a, a less of a kind of tribal Labour background. Um, and it led eventually, I mean, just uh, sort of summarising briefly, it led eventually to a series of things. Cooperation in Parliament between the two parties, not attacking each other, but um, focusing their attention on the Conservative government. And this is Major, John Major's government after Black, I always forget which day it was, was it Black Wednesday, when the, um, the economic crisis in 92 Conservative government begin to look like it was falling apart and they had their own problems over Europe uh, internally. So the two opposition parties um, tried to coordinate their attacks. They um, uh, made sure that uh, they weren't attacking each other, as I said. It led to policy cooperation. Now, Ashdown kind of explored the idea of perhaps even standing in the next election on the joint platform. That was that was too far uh, for, for obvious reasons. But the main outcome there was what became known as the Cook-McLennan talks between groups from each side looking at an agenda for constitutional reform. And eventually that produced a uh, set of proposals for quite far-reaching constitutional form. Things we perhaps take for granted now, but this is when it started. Devolution for Scotland, devolution for Wales, proportional representation for both their parliaments or assemblies, freedom of information legislation, reform of the House of Lords, uh, proportional representation of the European Parliament elections, and then a commission to look at reform of the electoral system for Westminster. Um, I said there was some talk about overt cooperation in the run-up to the 97 election. Perhaps the idea, the ideas of standing down for each other in seats was floated. We'd had not a very good uh, experience of that during the SDP Liberal Alliance period, so that didn't go very far. Um, there was an idea of uh, appearing together on platforms, calling for the uh, same kind of things. That was um, thought to be too far. And the fear was, and I think this was right, that that would scare 
wavering Conservative voters back to the Tories if the two parties were seen as ganging up on the government. So what they went for in the end was a, a more agenda of covert cooperation. They uh, explored which seats uh, both parties could win if uh, their voters transferred the votes to each other. So they encouraged tactical voting. A list of uh, 22 target seats were published in the Daily Mirror, where, in which if Labour voters, and the Mirror was the main Labour supporting tabloid, if Labour voters were to vote for the Lib Dems, they could defeat the Conservatives. In the end, 20 of them were won by the Lib Dems. They tended to, during the campaign, they tended not to attack each other. Again, they focused their attention on the government. They tended to focus on the same kind of issues, though they were the main issues in the, in the uh, campaign, health, education, and so on. But importantly, the two parties didn't have the same manifestos, except in those sort of constitutional reform areas. Lib Dem uh, manifesto was much more focused on improving spending on public services and even in you know, being prepared to raise tax to pay for them, whereas Labour was being very cautious, sticking to uh, conservative spending plans. So that was really helpful that the two parties were distinguished. And in the end, I mean, people will remember what happened in 97, uh, the Conservatives' worst defeat in a century and a half. They lost half their seats. Uh, the extent of tactical voting was unprecedented, uh, according to sophological studies. The Lib Dem seats more than doubled to 46, even though our vote actually fell from the 92 election. So in that sense, it was very successful. Of course, in, in the big sense, it was too successful. It was a Labour landslide. Um, there was no case in the end for a coalition between the parties, which had been talked about, even if Labour had just won a small majority. Clearly, with a 179-seat majority, there's no case for that. And though the cook McKinnon package was implemented in all respects except the kind of big one, the uh, Commission for Voting Reform, and uh, sadly that didn't happen. But I think it shows what can happen if opposition parties decide to cooperate together in a fairly kind of under-the-radar form. Um, some of it was public, the cook McKenna talks, but all that covert cooperation behind the scenes was, uh, was fairly secret, and many people didn't uh, hear about it at all until much later. Hello, John from the Lib Dem podcast here. We are delighted to say that this episode is sponsored by Prater Reigns. Now more than ever, you need a professional-looking online presence and website. Prater Reigns have been helping Liberal Democrat campaigns succeed for 18 years. Their Lib Dem foci package combines a website, social media and email system to help Lib Dems win. You'll receive great support from real people, fair pricing and a huge range of features to choose from. Prater Reigns are already the bespoke developers for Lighthouse, Lib Dem Draw Online and the LD Directory. They combine a talented system design with an unrivaled understanding of our party, our data and our systems. To find out more, check out the Prater Reigns website at praterreigns.co.uk slash liberal-democrats. This podcast has been sponsored by the Katora Coffee Club, the UK's most environmentally friendly coffee club. There are over 400 independent roasters in the UK, each one crafting coffee in their own unique style. Katora Coffee Club works with some of the best to take you on a voyage of coffee discovery. The Katora Coffee Club delivers ethically sourced and independently roast coffee directly to your door. Each month you'll receive between two and four bags of coffee and their monthly extract magazine. Even better for Lib Dem podcast listeners, use the code BETTERCOFFEE to save 5% on subscriptions and gift boxes for a limited time only. All Katora Coffee Club boxes are carbon negative and offset the CO2. So why not do some good, enjoy some great coffee and check out the website www.katoracoffeeclub.com.
Now, back to the podcast. Uh, we have now been joined by Polly McKenzie, who has joined uh, uh, joined this uh, debate. Um, Polly has experience uh, going into the government uh, in Westminster because she was a special advisor uh, for Nick Clegg during the coalition and now is the chief exec of Demos. So uh, welcome, Polly. And I suppose we, if you're OK going right into the breach straight away, um, what what you know, Kirsty's talked about actually being in power, doing some good. If you're not in power, you can't do that good. Um, so what was it like for you during the coalition? What lessons can you draw from that, from when the Lib Dems were in power in, in Parliament? Late and unprepared. So this is a meta performance about going into coalition in 2010. Unprepared. Unprepared. Um, uh, so, yeah, not late. We, we were on time, at least. Nevertheless, um, I also just have to say that I have massive book envy of Duncan Brack, uh, who is a great man, a truly great man, who has better, more books than me. Um, so what do I think about coalition? I mean, I, I missed what Kirsty said, but if she said that, then she's obviously right. Um, and I, I'm sure that there is uh, an argument uh, to say that we were hopelessly naive in 2010, but it was quite a thing, really, to be as somebody who was involved in writing the manifesto uh, with the federal policy committee in 2010 involved in you know explaining endlessly to journalists the practicalities of exactly what this policy meant or what we would really do if we were in government but having always done that as an entirely academic exercise the costings which we did for how much policies would cost they were to get us through press conferences not because we ever expected to be spending the money and suddenly we're in this moment where um, through the negotiations and then what I was more involved in actually writing the coalition's programme for government uh, to be starting to make plans for how we would do it. And for me, you have to think about the alternative because it's really, you know, history tells us that what happened was not great for the Liberal Democrats. And you know, I bear I bear some of the responsibility. Lots and lots of other people do for um, for what happened to this precious and wonderful and like historically valuable party. But nevertheless, the alternative at that time, and I've heard, heard it described by Philip Cowley, the the political academic, as um, uh, I'm going to say it badly, zugzwang, which is apparently some sort of chess thing for when you're forced to make a move, even though that move is going to put you into check. And I remember after the after the results had come through, I was working in Cowley Street. Nick came down, and we had you know first couple of meetings, and then we had a couple of hours off. I'm not quite sure what. I went to the pub with my husband, who came in to talk to me, and I had a white wine spritzer with soda, not lemonade, obviously, and I cried solidly for ninety minutes. I mean, I just I, I'm not sure I said anything, but he was very nice to me. Anyone who knows him will know he's that kind of guy. Anyway, he sort of just held my hand and possibly I burbled some stuff because it seemed to me that we had a great leader, one of the greatest leaders we had. And um, and we'd managed to get ourselves into a position where every way forward was painful or harmful um, to the party. It seemed at that point most likely that we would go into another election. Uh, within six months and we knew we'd run out of money so we couldn't afford to and that that two-party squeeze would come hammering down on us and so that's why I mean I wasn't particularly uh, a defining person arguing for this but I 
I, I did argue that we ought to try and go into coalition, if at all possible, with uh, the Conservatives. I was kind of comfortable with that because beyond that policy opportunity, that extraordinary opportunity to do the things we had talked about, um, was also just political survival. That at the very least, we were then going to be alive for five years instead of five months. Um, and uh, I just saw somebody's popped up, the sort of sense of why aren't people defending what happened in the coalition? I guess I'm just used to uh, people um, complaining about it. But I am, I'm actually immensely proud of, of what we did um, in terms of providing stability and uh, security to a fractious, divided, frightened country at a time of extraordinary turmoil. Um, I'm also incredibly proud of lots of the policies that we did. What saddens me is how few of them have been, uh, have proved to be un, un, indestructible. Uh, the pupil premium though, is something where we introduced a change to the funding mechanism to put more money into the schools that were taking on the kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. And that is now baked into the school funding formula. Has anybody, has any Liberal Democrat really ever got credit for anything other than we put some money into schools? I don't know, Kirsty probably has in uh, in Wales, but certainly within England and that pupil premium funding, that's what it was. From a, from a campaigning perspective, it was just more money into schools, but from a policy perspective, it was really, really dramatic system level change to say that every poor kid matters, even if they're in a richer area, understanding the way in which social disadvantage was affecting um, the system and, and changing that. And I could just go on and on. I think the, I just saw um, on Twitter actually Kwasi Kwarteng talking about um, uh, we've had the best year ever for uh, greenness of our electricity. Still not good enough. Nevertheless, big, big changes that Chris Hune and Duncan and uh, Ed Davey put into place that, you know, the stuff that just takes ages to actually uh, pay dividends because, my God, building a turbine takes quite a long time but that are absolutely decarbonizing our energy supply. And I don't want to just talk about it because Mark used to produce entire books with lists and lists and lists of the things that we've done. And I, I, you know, probably on my deathbed, I'll pick it up and I'll flick through it. And I will, I will focus on that instead of the things that we could have done better of which there are, there are many. Um, and, and even if all we did was, make the, I, I don't think this is the case, but even if you believe that all we did was hold back the worst excesses of the Conservative Party and keep Britain in kind of safe, strong government for five years, honestly, I, I think it was worth it because what's the alternative is to walk away and say that your life in politics and the purpose of your party is to say stuff and not to do stuff. And I, I think you have to accept the consequences of choosing, choosing life um in public in public policy thank you very much for that polly i should just point out and i'm con contractually obligated to you can buy and read mark's books when you're not on your deathbed he has it, that is something i have to say <laughs> it, otherwise oh, he so Duncan wants to come in on this so we'll allow Duncan to come in and then we will absolutely introduce uh, mark's point as well so duncan yeah, so this is, uh, I mean, this is really interesting. We have tried to analyse the uh, lessons of the coalition in the Journal of Liberal History. And uh, actually, all, I think all the special issues we published on it are now free for download on our website. So you can Ooh. have a look at them. And we'll be publishing more about it um, as well in the future. I mean, I think 
you know, without going into, with, we spend a lot of time discussing individual issues like tuition fees or the economy on NHS reform. And it, I think it's not worth in this event going on to that. I think one lesson I think is right from the coalition is that the main problem for us is that we simply submerged our identity. And by the end of the coalition, it wasn't that if you, I mean, the opinion polls showed this, it wasn't that people particularly hated us or disliked us. They just didn't see that we'd made any difference to the coalition. And Polly's quite right. We made lots of difference. And certainly in comparison with the conservative administrations that followed, the coalition was a period when the government was, the country was much better governed, but people didn't understand what it was that we'd done. And that was partly, um, reinforced by the fact that some of the things we did, like cutting income tax, we absolutely, you can defend it completely, um, but it, it wasn't the kind of thing people associated Liberal Democrats with. It was a kind of Tory thing to do, to cut taxes. So it didn't reinforce our image. And I think, um, and I think another problem was that um, we didn't have control of any big spending departments. So we didn't have the kind of thing that Kirsty was talking about in Wales. We weren't able to point to that. I think people who work on climate change absolutely understood the difference that we made on that agenda. I was a special advisor for two years of the, of the period, um, but that's quite a small number of people. It wasn't, you know, forefront at, 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 of most people's minds. And Nick was doing a good job, I think, in trying to monitor everything that was happening across government. But then he didn't really have any responsibility for anything major. Uh, or if he did, it was the constitutional reform program, which actually didn't really go any far, any far. So I think the lesson I would draw is, and it's the same as we had in the Blair Ashdown project, cooperate with other parties. I think you have to, you know, clearly in the position we were in in 2010, I agree it was the right thing to do in, co in to go into coalition. In 92, 97, it was the right thing to cooperate with Labour. But you have to keep your individual identity, your distinctive identity, and you have to put a lot of effort into making sure that happens. Thank you. Um, okay, we're going to bring Mark in now, because Mark, obviously, as party president, you are looking to the future. You know, and, and that is obviously key. What we all want, we all want a better, more liberal future. So given that the electoral mathematics says that Labour <clears> are <throat> very unlikely to win in the next election outright, there'll obviously be talk of how they can possibly do it. And they can only really do it with Lib Dems there. So are, are we prepared for that conversation or do we just avoid it and say, you know what, that's for the electorate to decide? Well, I think the... If you think about the mix of experiences we've had, which I think, you know, particularly the contrast between sort of Kirsty and Polly's sort of accounts of, you know, two different uh, periods with, you know, Liberal Democrat ministers is really striking is, is that I think there's a common pattern. And, and if you particularly if you also take into account, say, Scotland, where we've been in coalition with the Labour Party twice in, in, in power in Scotland, and actually both of those ended with pretty decent electoral outcomes. I think after the first period in coalition, we had a good election result. After the second period in coalition, I think we had a, at the time, would say slightly disappointing election result, but certainly compared to the 2015 general election, one would say it was a stonkingly good post-coalition election result. Of course, we don't you know, yet know how Kirsty's time uh, as education minister will will play out in the in the Welch elections. But, but I think one of the things that reasons why um, we, for example, did so much better electorally in Scotland, is that what we did after the election felt consistent with what we'd been saying before the election to the average voter. And so in Scotland, there had been a lot of cross-party uh, cooperation on things like bringing about Scottish devolution. So given we had been regularly working with Labour politically in other ways, then going into government with Labour 
felt a natural extension. Likewise, in Wales, um, you know, we've 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 had other arrangements, slightly different technically, as it were, but but essentially other arrangements which have had you know Lib Dems therefore uh, on the government side of of of, of the Welsh Senate in the past. And so again, you know, Kirsty Kirsty taking up the post in the way that she did felt a natural fit with what we've been doing before and you know in 2010 I mean I'm sure it must be I wouldn't be surprised if in a way Polly is slightly frustrated at the point at this point because I'm sure it must have felt to Polly and Sean and others that the media were asking every day about what would you do in hung parliament and we had a line about how we would talk to the largest party first and that we consistently stuck to and that's what we did but Truth be told, frustrating as it is, I think for an awful lot of voters, they were then really surprised that you know, they felt we had been talking about how awful the Tories and Labour were. And then there was, you know, David Cameron and Nick Clegg all, all happily uh, stood next to each other in the Rose Garden. And it felt like such a shift, although we might think, you know, unfairly that reaction. But in the end, what the voters think is what matters. That's what a democracy is about. So I think the big consistent lesson across all of this is that cross-party cooperation has to be in part about what you do before an election and whatever you might want to do after an election has to be foreshadowed by what you do before the election. Yeah, and I think one of the, the questions that came up repeatedly, and I want to thank everyone who did submit questions, we had uh, dozens upon dozens, but one of the themes that came up was, can we trust Labour to deliver some sort of reform that would then allow us to go into a partnership with them. I mean, Duncan laid out the case, it looked like there was cooperation, and then like say, Tony Blair got such a massive landslide, he didn't need us, particularly. So I'm very interested actually, because joining us on this, we've got lots of wonderful guests who are now uh, in the audience with us. One of them is a former Labour MP. And so we have Andrew, Andrew McKinley has come in. And so before I bring Kirsty into what her relationship has been like working with Labour, I thought, Andrew, what, what are your views coming from, as a former Labour MP for so many years, what are your views? on cross-party cooperation? Well, one of the reasons uh, I'm a Liberal Democrat now is um, I've found the Labour Party over half a century being deeply conservative when it comes to constitutional change and innovation. I mean, that's one of the great disappointments to me. And there are a couple of things picking up on the earlier discussion, which I'd like to mention. In 2010, looking back, and also from what I know for people who were in number 10, the the immediate 48 hours after the general election result, Gordon Brown was in fact not hungry for office and he was part of the problem. And, uh, you know, clearly he wasn't going to be prepared to step aside and find um, a prime minister who would be acceptable to both the Liberal Democrats and, and the Labour Party, which I find deeply disappointing, but not surprising. The other thing which I welcome um, some of your colleagues' views on, but I've been very disappointed and frustrated when I realised that everyone, when we came talked about electoral reform, we were always talking about Westminster, which clearly needs to be reformed. I unashamedly always wanted proportional representation there along the same pattern as operates in the Irish Republic and Northern Ireland multi-member constituencies. But um, I think that both Paddy Ashdown, and I, I can be less judgmental regards Nick Clegg in that period uh, later on, if they had asked for local government uh, 
um, proportional representation, I think they could have got it. Without a referendum, it could have been a, a price worth paying or even the option for municipalities to go for PR. If they had uh, asked for that, I think they would have got it. If they got it, we would be 20 years into it now and it would be much easier to be selling PR or there'd be a, a demand for it. And uh, apart from GLA, where there's a complicated uh, system of PR to some extent, I think complicated, but I think that there's been a lost opportunity there. Um, as to the future, well, uh, as somebody said earlier, clearly Labour's not going to have any prospect. Scotland's written off for them. They're not going to have the prospect of a majority Labour government. At some stage in the next three years, I hope it dawns upon them. But it, then it raises the question, what do we do? How do we accommodate it? No easy answer to that. But um, as I say, uh, uh, clearly, we've also got to keep talking about a realignment of the radical left. Uh, that was, uh, I go back to Joe Grimm, and that was always his mantra. He wanted that. Um, when this party was formed, it was the, I think it was the Social and Liberal Democrats, its long title. And I think we should play up our Social Democrat credentials as well for, for future discussion. Thank, Thank you, Andrew. And, uh, uh, Kirsty, just going to you, obviously you, I mean, I remember you were on the podcast previously and you, you were talking about not just working with Labour, but obviously in your role as Education Minister, and particularly in the light of COVID, you were working with uh, you know, had to deal with also the SNP education minister to see what they were doing, what Gavin Williamson is doing uh, in, uh, in, in government. You've had to work across party lines in your role. So how do you do you believe that Labour will switch and will suddenly decide that actually this has got to happen at some point because they're not going to get back in power? I think there's an element of the Labour Party that understands the reality of that situation and would want to do something about it. Um, I think for me, reflecting what's happened um, uh, and trusting the Labour Party, Polly talked about being um, underprepared uh, for working in a coalition. We were very prepared in Wales uh, and had been very careful in the writing of our manifesto because, of course, the electoral system in Wales has thrown up opportunities for lots and lots of uh, inter-party working. So therefore, there was an inevitability that, the, and it wouldn't, wasn't a surprise that the Labour Party found themselves in, in that situation again. So we were very careful uh, in terms of what our manifesto said. And of course, I was very, very fortunate to, and I think this is really important when it comes to working, is personal relationships, which you can't legislate for. And sometimes it's just a happen chance. Um, I, was work I had the opportunity to be invited into a government with somebody who I've worked alongside literally, you know, for well over a decade uh, in various capacities. And therefore, I absolutely trusted uh, I'm not naive, but I absolutely trusted um, the then First Minister in his dealings with me. And um, and I absolutely trusted the now First Minister when he asked me that if should he win the leadership of the Labour Party, would I stay on uh, in my in my role? And I think those personal relationships are really, really important. Uh, and uh, in terms of establishing a trust uh, and a working relationship, the challenge comes as Mark says, for being consistent 
and not necessarily consistent from a policy point of view, but that gut instinct about the view people have of you. And if you do something that the, the public really didn't expect you to do, I think that's really challenging. I mean, my, my equivalent of the Rose Garden was a very awkward photo call with Cheryl Gillan, the then Secretary of State for Wales. And initially I refused to go. And I literally was parked in a car around the corner from the Senate being shouted at by people from London saying that I had to make an appearance and I had to stand next to the Secretary of State for Wales and the leader of the Welsh Conservative Party. And I didn't want to do it. I really, really didn't want to do it. And I was told in no uncertain terms by somebody who shall remain nameless in the Federal Party that I was to go. And of course, the photograph was taken of a very grumpy Kirsty Williams, which I refused to take my coat and scarf off. And of course, it made quite a, it made, it, you know, it made for some fun YouTube videos in the years to come because it was quite clear that I did not want to be there and didn't want to be really associated with any of this. Um, and then I got a, I got a right bollocking from the Federal Party after I left for not being well behaved. But um, I think the, the challenge for me is the question that Mark raises and Duncan about how you retain your individuality in, work, in working in those circumstances. Uh, and I have to say, you know, that's been something that has been particularly challenging because uh, in Wales, of course, you know, I was the only Liberal Democrat Assembly member elected uh, at the last election. And because of a lack of capacity in the Welsh party, it's been really quite difficult, I think, uh, for the party to be in a position uh, to, you know, to remind voters that I'm not just an education minister, I'm a Liberal Democrat education minister. And, and, it, and I have to say again, and it sounds as if I'm being really mean to the federal party, um, the federal party has shown intermittent interest, shall I say, in what I've been doing. So, um, you know, sometimes the federal party is interested and likes to publicise what we've achieved in Wales. Um, and other times is completely oblivious to what we're doing in Wales. So um, it's been a real challenge. And I don't think we've cracked it, if I'm honest, here in Wales, although we've given it, we've, we've tried very wet, tried very hard uh, to, to do that. But because of a lack of capacity within the Welsh party, I think we haven't probably maximised the opportunities. And, um, and this was recently commented on by the new statesman when I announced my retirement about the federal party had not used the opportunity of the experience we have in Wales of working with the Labour Party to put forward a really positive case because I think the government has been a success and we haven't just done things in education. Um, Mr McKinley just talked about PR and local government. We haven't got it as far as quite as far as I would like it, but we have just passed the bill in the Welsh Senate uh, that will allow for PR in local government if those local authorities choose to use it. I mean it's not all the way there, but it's a step there. Uh, and um, you know again, uh, that's working one Liberal Democrat working in a Labour coalition, but we've been able to push it that far. And I suppose one of the things that I invite anyone else uh, from our panel um, to all the people in the view uh, in the Zoom uh, meeting now watching, if you do want to ask a question, we are going to start bringing in you guys for questions. If you know how to use the raise hand function, please do that and it will come up on my list. Um, but for, for, for either Mark, Polly, or Duncan, there's a there's a kind of a, a you've got to make a decision sometimes if you go into government you're going to get walloped that's the the cyclical kind of nature of politics so how can you possibly work with other parties and protect yourself from getting that electrical electric electoral hit um while doing what Kirsty's just said if you don't do it then what you want just doesn't happen Shall I have a shall I have a first stab at that? Um, I should Damn just say as an aside, I couldn't resist just now having a look on the internet for the photo op that Kirsty was mentioning. And the photo is 
is fa- I mean, I mean, it's, I appreciate it. it's a very serious issue, but it's also a very funny issue. Funny, it's a very funny photo because you can see how Kirsty has basically stood several feet further away from everyone else in the photo. <laughs> and it's a, perhaps an interesting what if, if what if the rose garden had looked as it were like that rather than rather than the much more friendly uh, thing that it did. But but on that point about, I mean, you're absolutely right about you know we need to think about what the not just can we do good for a period of years, but what happens afterwards? Because, you know, one of the frustrating things in Westminster has been the number of good things we did in 2010 to 15, that when you're not in power can get undone. Um, and it, it's notable that, you know, there are some things uh, that we did, uh, and I think Lynn is on, on, on the call, so the obvious example to give would be legalisation of same-sex marriage, which once it's done, it's very unlikely to be undone. But there's an awful lot of other stuff that's really hard to protect once you're out of power. And, you know, fingers crossed that we we do well in the elections in Wales uh, this May, and therefore we're able to build on, you know, Kirsty's colleagues are able to build on what she's done. Uh, but, you know, it, 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 it just takes one, you know, one government budget round to be able to suddenly massively slash education if, you know, that's who's in power. So I, I think the answer is this, it goes back to this consistency point is we need to have a, we need to make clear to voters what difference we'll make and it will and it needs to be something that's distinctively Lib Dem in the sense I think one of the mistakes and I say this with hindsight because um, you know it uh, you know I, I, certainly not a point I, I think really any any of us who were around then were making at the time but I think one of the mistakes we made in the Westminster coalition was by putting such a lot of political capital into getting the £10,000 income tax allowance. It was a really good policy, but if you're the typical voter who doesn't follow politics that closely, Lib Dems being in government, government cuts taxes, well, the Tories would have done that anyway. You know, it just, it, it, it just from the very starting point is that's a hard sell that, oh, taxes have been cut more because the Lib Dems are in government. You know, that just, people expect the Tories would cut. I think that's where, you know, Kirsty being an education minister in that sense is a much better natural fit. It's you're starting with going with the grain of what people might find might find plausible. So I think the big challenge we have, and you know, it's it's not for me to decide on this in any way, it's for you know, members to to in the end make the decision on this, is what do we pick? You know, what do we end up thinking is both really vital to do if there's a sniff of a hung parliament and a bit of political leverage that could be long lasting and distinctive and relevant to voters? Because that's quite a hard tick list to make. I think a lot of people are slipping into, actually slipping is a little unfair, maybe a lot of people are beginning to form the view that electoral reform should be, you know, the absolute we must achieve. And that ticks some of those boxes. But there's a big question about how do we make voters feel it's important enough? You know, oh, hurrah, the Lib Dems have got some power and now they want to go off and talk electoral systems. You know, for some voters would feel like we're not really understanding what's most important to them. So it's maybe it's not that we do that. Maybe it's alternatively a way of packaging electoral reform to make it feel more relevant to voters. But I think that's 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 the the, the really tricky question is what what ticks all three of those boxes. Duncan? So I agree with everything that Mark said. Um, but in addition to that, I think, I mean, almost inevitably, w- you will lose support if you go into a coalition. It's 
almost inevitably happens to junior partners and coalitions kind of everywhere. Um, I just say almost because actually, as I think you said before, or Mark said before, the experience of the Scottish Lib Dems and coalition with Labour from 1999 to 2003, uh, 2007, sorry, through two parliaments was not so bad. Actually, they lost a little bit of support in the last one, but not in the first one. Of course, the system there is PR. Um, but in the 2010-2015 coalition, it was just the just the fact of going into coalition that actually caused most of the damage to our vote. And if you look at the opinion polling, we'd lost most of the support um, straight away in the first few months, even before things like tuition fees came along. So I think I agree with Mark, it can't be just about PR, but actually PR has to be the prize that we have to try and get. And then the way to get PR is not to do it as part of a post-election deal. It's to get the parties that are going to be in government, in the if this is possible, the parties that are going to be in the coalition commit to doing that before they get elected. So um, it is a clear commitment. They stood on and got elected there. So the um, I can see people commenting on the chat on Labour's commitment to PR now. It is absolutely crucial part of the argument. Thank you very much. I want to bring in the first question. So the first person I had up was uh, Mohammed Amin. Hi, Mohammed. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question, if it's just for one of our panellists, let us know which one or we'll, we'll, we'll give it to them all. It's quite clear to me that there's enormous reluctance within the party to go for standing down candidates. And I want to get a better understanding of what that reluctance is based on. Is it based on historical experience or is it based on ideology? Because to my mind, if you're trying to get the Tories out, you don't want to give people in the North where Labour are the main competitor of the Tories any chance of voting Liberal Democrat and vice versa in the South. So on a negotiated basis, I don't see why our key strategy is not to stand down candidates on an agreed basis. Uh, from, well, as someone who fights Labour in the North, I think when you realise that both Labour and the Tories are utterly rubbish in so many ways, in so many seats, uh, that standing down candidates can be a really difficult process to go through. And actually, you, you sometimes you look at the longer term, if we stand, stand down candidates, sometimes something uglier comes up but I'll let our that's just my personal view for as a, a as a campaigner does anyone on our panel want to want to answer that question from Mohammed yes I can have a go um in that there is historical experience to suggest this wouldn't be a at the best wouldn't be much good and b could even be counterproductive um for a start we have been through this in 1983 and 1987 with the liberal SDP alliance and anyone who's around that long might remember how horribly time-consuming and painful that process was and that was between two parties who were standing on the common platform you know we agreed with each other and it was still horrible um the uh the in the last election of course 2019 we had some limited withdrawal of candidates between the greens and Plaid and the lib dems and the evidence suggested it didn't make a huge amount of difference to the vote in any of those cases um but i think the strongest evidence you have is the polling that was done in the run-up to 97 and i mentioned that there was some discussion of uh the party standing down candidates labor standing down candidates uh with the lib dems in some areas of the country and also discussion of appearing on joint platforms you know attacking their party and they did polling in Lib Dem target seats um, and what the evidence was that 
it would put off people who were thinking about maybe switching to the Lib Dems from the Conservative. They were open to the proposition that the party, the two parties could participate in government if that's what the election delivered, but they strongly disliked the idea that Lib Dems should gang up with Labour against the Tories, and the prospect of that would frighten them back to their original party. So I think you have to be, I think that's why in the end they went for these various forms of covert cooperation. I think that was a much more successful way to go about it. Polly, do you have any thoughts on this about um, how we how we deal with... There, there's always clamour, isn't there? There's always clamour saying, well, you know what, the Tory are the real enemies. Do you guys want to uh, step down on this? What, what was your kind of... Within coalition, as you start getting to the end of it, what were those kind of conversations like? I, there wasn't, certainly not that I was involved in, a sort of meaningful discussions about, about standing down in places in 2015 because, you know, quite understandably, the Labour Party was a bit pissed off with us. Um, I mean, personally, I think they should have focused their ire on being pissed off with the Conservative Party. But, you know, um, the Labour Party's ability to uh, focus on its own interests uh, to the point of self-harm is uh, a truly remarkable phenomenon. So so they did what they did. Um, I, I think, you know, this does come down to all sorts of tensions, which are sort of slightly there as well in this question of what are your... What are your political priorities? I thought, I thought Mark and Duncan were really compelling on this idea that the problem was that Nick, Danny and David's kind of priority policy agenda was stuff that had emerged from an attempt to move the Liberal Democrats a bit further to the centre. And, and we probably managed that a bit, but not to the point where that stuff didn't get lost if you were in coalition with the Conservatives. It did. Uh, but the problem is that they'd spent years doing that. And so to go and be like, we're against foundation hospitals and we want to have tuition fees and let's spend a lot of money and poke rich people in the eye, felt like an entire sort of surrendering all of the progress they'd made, trying to turn it into a more classically liberal, more centrist party. Now, of course, fundamental question, what are your politics as a person listening or mine or, or, or the bulk of the membership? And what is our kind of purpose? Was it just wrong of Nick and David and Danny or people like me to want to do that, to have a truly liberal party of the radical centre, or, or, or is it in fact just a more comfortable thing for the Lib Dems to be a bit like the Labour Party, but without the trade unions and a bit sort of fluffier and caring about climate change a bit more. And, and actually what we're trying to do, you know, this let's go to the left and let's, oh, Corbyn's stolen our territory. Because actually the reality is that being to the left of Labour is something which we had done and executed for years. Um, under Charles Kennedy, because obviously the Labour Party had moved. But so where does that come down to is if you believe that the Tories are the one true enemy in our political system, then, of course, you should gang up and collaborate with other parties. I don't believe that. I'm sorry. And people may hate me for that, but that just I don't believe that. I just see politics differently. If it's all about left versus right, be in the party of the left and there's a chance of it winning. I, unless you believe that there is a separate thing, which is liberalism, which is worth defending and promoting, and that sits outside this tedious, tortuous axis of left and right. And if you do believe that, you cannot believe also that the Conservatives are the one source of true evil in our politics, then join the Liberal Democrats. It's a glorious place to be. But I, I, it's, it's trying to hold the two things in your head at the same time that I don't understand. But I do understand why people think there should be a progressive consensus and we should all collaborate. It's just that the simple way to do that is to join the same party. Thank you very much for that. Uh, 
David McKenzie, you've got a question for us. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, I think Polly's kind of lined that up quite well because I was going to ask about the emotions of coalitions. Now, John, you know that I, I come from a Labour background, uh, was in the Labour Party for over a decade. When I left the Labour Party to join the Lib Dems in 2019, I had um, former members of the Labour Party say to me, oh, you're going off to join the Fib Dems. Well, I'll never speak to you again. So there's emotions on both sides. There's people within the Lib Dems who don't like Labour. There's people within Labour who don't like the Lib Dems. How do you get over the emotions of going into a coalition and actually make it work and work for people? Mark, do you want to come in first on this? Yeah, I think it's well. I, well, firstly, thank you, David, for, for 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 joining us and sticking with it, despite despite how some of your some of your colleagues uh, responded. I think it. I mean, it's a tricky one, and I think it partly comes back to um, Polly's point. Um, and I guess I would say I am somebody who can hold both things in my head um, at once, in the sense that I think you know Polly is absolutely right that liberalism is different from what Labour believe and what uh, what the Conservatives believe, liberal democracy, liberalism, uh, infused with a bit of social democracy, you know, is different from those. I think it's also true that it's more different from what the Conservatives believe than from what Labour believes. You know, you can be, you know, you can be different from two other people, but more different from one of them than you are from the other. And I think, you know, that's, that's actually a very coherent uh, position point to hold and and the reason I mention this is I think this is where it comes to your question David is the more that you have a confident self-belief in what you stand for as opposed to simply disliking someone else the easier it is to actually get those emotional relationships right you know if if and and, and in a sense this was part of the problem in 2010 was that a lot of our vote a lot of people who voted for us either just did, really didn't like the Tories or really didn't like political parties in general and therefore, when they then had had voted for a party that went a went into government and went into government with the Tories, it would, you know, that was problematic. So, so I, 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 I think a key part of the answer is that positive self belief in what you stand for, because because that deals with the emotions, but it also helps set up for that thing that I've been talking about in you know a couple of my other answers about needing to have something that you can do that is consistent with how people perceive you, and so it has to come from that. And that's where I think you know with. Um, you know what what Kirsty has been doing in Wales is actually so effective because that sense of liberals caring about education as a way of unlocking people's potential that's a very natural fit but that's also a positive thing to talk about and I think you know the fact that you can start from that positive point of view I, I, I Kirsty may correct me on this but I, I suspect makes it a lot easier to have discussions with people in other parties because you're starting from from a from a positive point of view rather than from a right who are we going to hate today point of view Kirsty uh, yeah I think I think um, from my perspective um, uh, you know em emotions uh, is something that or people being led by their emotions is something that I haven't found around the cabinet table. I really haven't, uh, but have come across in the party. And there are some people in the party in Wales who think that this is, it's a terrible idea that I'm in the government. And there are people who are very pleased that I'm in the government. But in terms of the day-to-day -day running of the government, um, I'm, I've been very fortunate actually, and found uh, cabinet colleagues very collegiate. And, um, uh, and also 
found working with Labour uh, members of the Senate. Um, some of them are more challenging than others and some of them, you know, are more comfortable than others with the fact that I'm there. But actually, as Mark says, you know, um, which, mem which, which one of those is going to object to me finding the money to provide free school meals right the way through the holidays till Easter next year? They're not going to uh, ob object, uh, object to that. And I think, you know, it, it comes back to the point of, you know, there have been times when, you know, when there have been policy discussions around that cabinet uh, table. And I think what's important as well, my position has always been respected by the Labour members around that table. So at no point have I ever felt unable to say the things that I want to say. Some of them agree with me, actually. More, you know, there are some of them that are more progressive and, you know, and actually appreciate having somebody there that pushes perhaps, you know, uh, the agenda along in a way that they're very happy to, to go along with. Uh, but um, certainly from my perspective, I have I have not found it difficult. And if you start from a position of what is the problem we're trying to achieve here and you know, we're trying to solve what, what's the solution we're trying to achieve and how can we use those values? And there is a crossover of, of values. And how can we use those values to get to a, a position of success? Then that's very welcome. I think there is evidence to suggest that PR systems tend to lead to better, more consensual politics um, than first past the post, winner takes all systems, which is what you expect because you don't have the same incentives to disagree with everything your opposition or another party is saying because you might end up in coalition, you might have to end up in coalition or rely on their support uh, in future, um, after future elections. So I think uh, it could be one of the things that PR unlocks. Um, just to pick up on that and just to kind of respond to Polly, I don't think the Conservatives are the sole source of evil in the British political system but and I don't think entering coalition is an end in itself you have to look at what you are trying to achieve but at the moment uh, and because I think PR I accept that Mark uh, what Mark said PR is not everything we should be about but it is a really really important element and the Conservatives are not going to give it the government's not going to give it if I don't know whether Labour can be persuaded to commit to PR in advance of election but there is at least a better chance of doing that which is why I think this uh, this discussion is relevant now and if it means ganging up on the Conservatives and this is a uniquely awful government I would say then I think that's all for the good. I mean, we talk about any discussion on constitutional reform or anything like that. I mean, we have to accept that most of the public don't give two hoops. You know, you know, I live in an area with uh, a two-tier council area. Most people don't realise there's two councils. You know, they think, I have been asked if I'm the MP. That's how little some members of the public actually engage with politics. But so I think the, the point being made is that Yes, we're for PR, but it doesn't mean we have to have that front and centre of all our leaflets. And there's a lot of chat here. Well, you know, 150 local Labour groups have actually signed us do it. As we've seen from all sorts, the, the, the Labour Party can completely ignore its grassroots if they want. And it is the, it is the, the power base of the Labour Party is still in Westminster as much as the local parties might want it. And we've seen that from things like the, the UBI debate. Loads of Labour members want UBI. Keir Starmer's already said that it's not going to be in the next manifesto. So how then do we do that? And I suppose, Mark, come on, I want to come back to you on this, but there's been there were questions asked about, okay, should it be a formal coalition? Should it be a confidence and supply? Some people have asked in the chat as well. Again, do you really think people, the public will actually know the difference or will they just think Lib Dems are with an, an extra group or are we just damned whatever we do? Yeah, um, 
sceptical that the public really noticed very much the difference between coalition, confidence and supply and so on. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the technical details, as it were, are definitely important to get right. Um, but fundamentally, if, you know, if you're voting, if we take the Westminster example, if you're voting for the leader of party X to become prime minister, that's who you're sort of tarred with, even, you know, even if you don't, you know, you don't return from the limo to your, uh, from, from the vote to your, you know, your office uh, in, in a ministerial limo, you know. Um, so, 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 what, but that said, in terms of the mechanics of what you can do, I mean, Kirsty, I think very, really eloquently in her opening comments, made the point about how much you can do if you're actually a minister and you've got your, your handle on the, the levers of power. Um, I think, if you're thinking specifically about the next general election, that may be, as it were, the exception, because one of the lessons uh, from coalition, if you look at things like, you know, the Institute for Government did a really good pamphlet back in the coalition years, um, and they did a lot of talking to the Dem ministers and former ministers and special advisors and so on about what the lessons were about what wasn't, wor wasn't working about coalition government. And actually, I think one of the lessons from that is that at least in the Westminster political setup, is you have to have a lot of MPs, and you have to have a lot of backroom staff as well supporting them to be able to just cope with the breadth of what being in coalition means. So, so I think there's a there's a sort of special exception case, perhaps, you know, in terms of whatever might happen at the next hung parliament that we have in Westminster about whether we're big enough. You know, there's enough of us <laughs> to be able to think about anything other than a confidence supply type region. But your basic point, I definitely agree with. We shouldn't overestimate the extent to which the public, you know, decide on who to vote for because of the minutiae about, you know, is it a Labour-led government or is it a Labour-Lib Dem coalition? And, you know, those nuances are important in their own, for other reasons very often, but they're not really what the public notices. Was can I disagree with Mark? Mm. Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, rare occasions. Uh, I mean, yeah, yes. Quick, I... find the mute button, John. <laughs> yeah, he's off. I'll get rid of him, Mark. Don't worry. <laughs> I um, I agree with you. The public don't notice the difference pretty much. But the point is that, um, and you made the point yourself, if in the coalition you have ministers in place doing things, Kirsty wouldn't be able to do all the things, probably wouldn't be able to do all the things she's been able to do if it had just been a confidence and supply agreement at the beginning of the parliament. I mean, maybe if you have a very detailed confidence and supply agreement, but generally speaking, they aren't that detailed. Um, and you, you, know, you set out your sort of principles for various things. You agree to support the government on a few things, but like, uh, not anything else. But then it's the other party that has all the ministers and it's them that are doing things. And I made the point that we didn't do anything distinctive enough during the coalition 2010-2015. Well, if we hadn't had ministers, that was yeah, to a certain extent our fault. If we hadn't, but if we hadn't had ministers in the coalition, we would have even less of a chance to do that. And the other difference is that a confidence and supply agreement is static. The only point at which you can exercise leverage is immediately after the election. So you have to try and predict everything then. Whereas in the coalition, it's dynamic. You have ministers in place throughout the five years or however long it lasts, and they can respond to different circumstances and they keep on doing new things that you hadn't thought about when you were trying to negotiate a confidence and supply agreement in 2010, or the beginning of the period. Uh, and I think those are the kind of reasons why the Parliamentary Party decided to, to opt for a coalition if they could get one, rather than confidence and supply in 2010. And I think they were quite right. And, and, can, I, and can I say, you know, I've got slightly, I got experience on both sides of it, not so much a formal confidence and supply, 
but in the parliament uh in the fourth senate uh, in the uh in wales the labor party governed as a minority which meant that every single time the budget came round you know they needed to cut a deal with either ourselves or plaid cymru and you found yourself then being played off against the plaid demands and you were being negotiated down and bargained down because you know the first minister had somewhere had somewhere to go and um and and, and you know, and we did achieve things. We absolutely did achieve things in the couple of budgets where we struck a, a deal. But it gives it gives your opponents all the ammunition to say, well, that's those Liberal Democrats cozying up to the Labour Party again without the rewards. And I'd rather get hung for a sheep than a lamb. And at least this time round, you know, uh, as Duncan says, you know, not only have I been able to do Liberal Democrat things in education, and I have to say not once has the First Minister or any of the Labour Party said to me, you can't do that. And we are doing some really, really radical things, which will be really, really difficult to, un to undo and new legislation will have to. So it's not just around budgets and expenditure. There are fundamental things that we have, have done that I think will test, will, will last the test of time. But you're also, you know, you are also in influencing other decisions, you know, uh, outside of, of education and the PR for local government is just uh, is just one of them. So I think in the minds of the public probably doesn't make a difference, but in your ability to to do things, it, as Duncan says, I think it makes a massive uh, amount of difference and it's events. You know, the bits that you can agree on and sign up on the piece of paper on day one, that believe me, that's the easy bit. You know, who would, you know, I would never have known, who would any of us have known when I signed up to be a minister of the government that I'd be spending my last year of that minister running an education department in the middle of a pandemic, you know? And so you've got to then, I think it takes you back then to what Duncan said about that flexibility, about, you know, constantly being around the table. And it takes you back to that position of, of, of trust as well, really, because you can't, we, we couldn't have predicted this, not at all. Uh, and um, a confidence in supply would not have been able to countenance what we've had to deal with over the last 12 years as a government. 12 months, sorry, not 12 years, 12 months. It feels like 12 years. I can tell you, <laughs> it blinking feels like 12 years, but it's only been 12 months. Um, we have a question. Uh, Nigel Jones, you wish to ask a question? Thank you. Yes, my question is about difference that can exist very clearly between what goes on nationally and what goes on locally. In, in my constituency, I was actually on council cabinet in coalition with Tories for a number of years, and it worked extremely well, partly because we um, had this understanding that we would revisit our agreement every year. So that kept both of us on our toes as to what we were doing. But in spite of that circumstance, um, our views as a local Lib Dem party, as Mark said, are much more in line with Labour's general approach to things than Tories. So there seems to be a practical difference there, as well as an ideological difference. But my question really with that as a background is, whatever happens now nationally, how should we play it in our own constituencies? If, for example, a progressive alliance really took off, um, would we have to feel obliged locally to then work a great deal with our local Labour Party when, in fact, we have found, in spite of the ideological similarities, the local Labour Party extremely difficult to work with? Uh, and I, I can attest that I have a, a very radical left-wing 
local Labour Party who are absolutely rotten to deal with, but on the county level, they're quite sensible, uh, mm. where the Tories are absolutely rotten to deal with. So um, yeah. I don't know who, who wants to come in on this on our, on our panel. Polly, do you want to come in on this or talking about how you deal with... Uh, better unmute yourself first, Polly, just before I uh, get going. Um, is how do you deal with that, then, that, that juxtaposition between local and national? Because there will be areas where Lib Dems and Labour are knocking socks off each other and always have, like Hull or Liverpool, and they're not suddenly going to stop uh, no, I mean, I, I once stood in a local council election. I, I did so well that if I'd increased my vote by 50%, I still would have lost. Um, uh, and uh, and I think that's partly because leaflets were put out suggesting that I'd stolen a council flat, which um, I hadn't, um, as it happens, in case anybody was worried about me. Um, so I, I've sort of been on the receiving end of some really brutal Labour campaigning. And there is that sense in which often you are drawn locally to, I think it was, um, uh, it wasn't Stephen Jolly, it was Andrew Jolly, I think, who said that he was a member of the Liberal Democrats for basically the same reason that he was a, a supporter of his local football team. It was just sort of a family thing and whatever the local thing was. And you get you get drawn into a, a set of local politics, especially in those places like in, in the North, where there's essentially a one party state of the Labour Party. The Conservatives, you know, uh, sort of eradicating all through the, the 90s and the 2000s, that sense that the Liberal Democrats were just the only opposition. So and and. and and a sense in the Labour Party that Liberal Democrats having the audacity to even oppose them in their fiefdom of one party state was was deeply offensive. But of course, we also have seen uh, extraordinary kind of brutalising campaigns by by the Conservatives. I, I was I just did a recording about God, this is really depressing, right? So the BBC radio were doing a, uh, a some sort of archive hour thing on the forgotten referendum of the AV referendum. And like, first of all, it's a decade ago. And secondly, like, that's how they're classifying it. Is it so obscure and pointless? Anyway, really depressing. Anyway, so I was just talking to them. And, and I, I was thinking about it. And I was reminded of the moment when David Cameron, who, of course, he said that he would not put any effort into campaigning against Davey. And then he stepped in. He raised funds. He got donors to back leaflets, including this one leaflet that basically said Nick Clegg is Satan because he backed the Conservative Party's policy on tuition fees. Now, people are entitled to that opinion, but of all of the people in the world who should think that Nick Clegg is not evil for backing David Cameron's policy, you would think it would be David Cameron. But no, David Cameron was willing to totally surrender, I don't know, morality, purpose and um, honour to say that Nick Clegg was in this way evil, to back, to put money into, into those leaflets. And to say that the worst thing a person could do in politics is back David Cameron, um, which is all a bit galling, really. Uh, the other parties, I think, are actually slightly better at being brutally acting in their own self-interest than, than the Lib Dems are. And, and you then get these situations where actually, oh, and then you've got a rainbow coalition or you've got uh, Lib Dems and Labour Party working happily together to, to oust the Conservatives from some county council. For me, in the end, it comes down to actually... Uh, a more a bigger puzzle that I expect Mark's probably already figured out the answer to, but is that tension between what you believe locally and whether you have a national brand? And the reality is, Lib Dems did. I don't think it's you know we're sort of attacked for it, but build up different brands, different identities across the country. 
excuse me. Um, uh, anyway, um, focused on being good locally. We kept, in a way, it was sort of, we, we don't do the national politics thing. We're just your community champions. And loads of our MPs secured backing from kind of across party political spectrum in their areas to get elected on the basis of that. Of, I'm just, you know what? I just love North Norfolk or Cumbria or um, uh, Torquay, wherever it, wherever it is. And, and then, of course, along comes coalition and suddenly you're for stuff. And even if it's good, it's... It, it takes you to a different conversation at a different level. And we had exploited the freedom of not really having a national identity beyond a couple of policies and, you know, a couple of famous, charming and affable leaders that gave us freedom. And, and, and so one of the challenges of going into government at all at national level is it does just wrap something into people's throats about who you are and what you stand for. I was really struck, I think it was, was it Mark who said earlier? Um, lots of people who voted for us in 2010 had done so because they because they hated the Conservatives or because they just hated politicians. And so that's when you get this phenomenon of people switching from Liberal Democrats to UKIP. And you think, who are these people? The reality is they're just they're just that none of the above crowd. And and, and they're happy to back a, a good local candidate. Uh, I'm not sure I've concluded anything, but I've I've rambled a bit. No, well, that, hey, trust me. If you've ever listened to the Lib Dem podcast, that, that, that that's that's my that's my thing. So don't take that from me. Um, Sorry. No, but, <laughs> no, I suppose what the, the question with the group is: Does it change depending on the particular circumstance of the government? Because Duncan's already alluded to how rotten this current uh, administration is, the current Tory administration, and surely it's so bad. And the Tories have gone so far to the extreme of almost incompetence that doing any sort of deal with them nationally or anything just seems so far away from logic, just like Corbyn was, actually. If you think about any sort of idea that we could have done any sort of deal with the, the far-left Corbynistic tribe is just completely devolved of logic for me. And then, but also, Duncan, before I bring you in, the, the, the big thing we haven't touched on at all is the nationalistic issue in both Wales and Scotland. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with other parties? If Because particularly in Scotland, SNP and Green on one side, Labour just don't want to talk about Scotland because it's just a basket case for them. So how do Lib Dems get that unique position of being unionist without seeing, being, seeing on the same side as the Tories? So I'm going to ignore that question because I don't okay. know what the answer is. Um, okay, but hopefully <laughs> Kirsty can comment uh, or maybe the party's president can because I'm sure it's all his responsibility. But I want to ask, uh, answer Nigel's question, which is how do you, uh, what do you do to collaborate with parties locally if you're in some kind of uh, sort of progressive alliance? I think the answer is you don't, um, actually. Following the pattern of the Ashdown Blair project in the late 90s, which I think as you can tell, I'm a fan of it. It worked uh, in many ways. Um, you agree, the parties nationally just uh, agree on the fairly narrow range of topics which they think are important and I mean you know people I suppose people were talking about constitutional reform a bit in the 90s but it still wasn't the main issue the main issue was funding of public services and the economy and so on but you can do that on a number of issues perhaps for the next time it might be pandemic preparedness or you know independence guaranteed independence of the of the judiciary or the BBC or stuff like that and it should include PR and otherwise, you don't try to um, reach agreement with you because with, with them, because as I said, you have to maintain your own distinctive identity, and you have to prove to wavering Tories that you're not just ganging up with these Labour people who they probably detest to 
to, to dish down their government. You have to make it easy for them to transfer the votes across. Um, Nigel was right, incidentally, to say that usually we are closer to Labour. Actually, one thing that was in the background of the 2010 coalition that people, most people didn't notice was that actually the three parties' manifestos were all much closer together than they normally are. This is, of course, partly because Labour had been in power for 13 years, but partly because, of course, the Cameron attempt to move the Conservatives to the kind of responsible centre, um, which quite clearly fell apart very quickly when they got into power. Mark, you've been tasked with finding an answer. Uh, so what are your thoughts? Um, so I, I think I think it's perfectly possible to sort of be, as it were, consistent and honourable and principled and have varying levels of cooperation depending on the circumstance. And I think a sports analogy is probably quite a good one to bring it out. So, you know, think of your favourite, whatever your favourite sport is, whatever your favourite team sport is. It's a very normal, natural thing for people to be really ardent supporters of their team and really want their team to beat up every opposition team that they play. But also to sometimes understand that there's a commonality of interest between the fans of different teams um, and between different teams. And, and quite often that's a commonality of interest aimed at the regulators of that sport. <laughs> um, but sometimes also there's a commonality of interest between the fans and the different teams and the regulators and the outside world, say if there's issues about government funding and regulation and so on. So it's, you know, it, there's this shifting dynamic of sometimes the fans of the other team are your opponent. Sometimes the regulators are your opponent. Sometimes they're your ally. And in politics, it's similar, I think, in that respect. And one of the consistent patterns, I think, across a lot of the examples that particularly Polly and Duncan and Kirsty have given of successful cooperation is their successful cooperation where at heart the personal relationships are between politicians who are not directly in contest with each other. So it be interesting to to speculate what how politics in Wales for example might have played out if Kirsty was representing a seat that was a Labour Lib Dem marginal seat um, or similarly in Scotland uh, you know the fact that there were relatively few constituencies which were Labour Lib Dem contest that it was predominantly Labour up against other parties Lib Dems up against other parties I think that made those two periods of coalition government in Scotland a lot easier um it also actually in that sense was was a bit of a factor in you know us going into coalition with the Tories in 2010 in that um and, and why that was in a sense also less successful was because we faced a, a much bigger mix of seats we were fighting Labour in seats we were fighting the Tories in so by sad happy whatever twist of of a fate the 2019 general election has given us a very clear pattern that you look at the seats we're first or second in overwhelmingly those are Lib Dem sorry Lib Dem conservative contests there are very few Lib Dem Labour contests and oh my goodness you know very much wish we win for example Sheffield Hallam which is one of those next time round but one can see the broader picture that um, the, the most intense competition is between Lib Dems and the Tories electorally in that sense. And I think that probably is a pointer, you know, as to what is likely to be easier or harder to do in the future, therefore, as well. And with that, I think I'm going to ask the panel one final quick question before we uh, sum up. And I want to thank everyone for being on this. I suppose we'll go to Polly first. Uh, is If you were to take one lesson, because this originally was titled Lesson from Coalition and Working with Other Parties and, and Cooperating, what's the one lesson you would take 
from your time and your experiences to into the future? Um, got us a front door. Comes actually down oh. to the identity stuff about defining your identity, pitching that, being more separate, you know, all of that, all of that narrative. So there's a lot of substance that needs to sit behind it. But but for me, it's symbolized by the fact, you know, Nick Clegg went through David Cameron's front door. Downing Street's full of doors. We could have had number nine, could have had number 12. And, and it occurred to us about three weeks too late. Uh, and and that's subsuming, that sort of symbolic disappearance to, oh yeah, I've got this office uh, in 70 Whitehall, it's down 17 corridors and through a door that's slightly, uh, you know, it doesn't work, it, we didn't have status. And both, uh, yeah, practically and symbolically, that sense of having a separate identity right from the start, I think is, is really important. I don't know if Kirsty has a front door. She does to her yeah. house, I'm expecting, but. Kirsty, what have your what's been your uh, lesson from your time? Um, uh, I think Mark is right. I think maybe the perspective would have been very different from both sides if I hadn't been the sole Liberal Democrat, Liberal Democrat elected, and therefore it was much easier for the Labour Party. And personally, I don't think the Welsh Liberal Democrats had any choice but to allow, but to vote the way they did to allow me to do what I've done for the last five years. Um, my regret is is because because the because the party had found itself in such a weakened state, I think it's been really, really difficult then for the local, for, for the Welsh party to to utilise uh, what we've been able to do. There just hasn't been the infrastructure there uh, to be able to to do that. So that's a change. And John, you should definitely do another one of these where we can indeed talk about the future of the union, uh, because the rise of English nationalism, uh, what's happening in Scotland, and how people uh, feel about the world here in Wales has profound profound uh, challenges from for for the way forward and uh, it, there there is a job for the liberal democrats there uh, to uh, offer an alternative what's the offer because at the moment what's on offer uh, i think is either highly highly damaging or, or it's more of the same and um, certainly there may be a, a certain generation of welsh people that will accept that but my children's generation of uh, welsh people are not going to accept it so what's the what is the liberal democrat offer for the future uh, of the of the of the union and the future of uh, of these nations. I think that is an absolute guarantee that we will cover that going forward. And I'm going to do a slight plug for the uh, Lib Dem podcast, and um, that we did do an episode on nationalism. Uh, and patriotism, etc. Uh, just only a couple of weeks ago, with some brilliant members from Wales and Scotland. So do go check that out if any of you don't already subscribe to the Lib Dem podcast. Well, I mean, Duncan, in now actually, Duncan, what you're what, looking right the way through history? What would be your lesson to take from it? Well, I think Polly was absolutely quite right. The importance of building a distinctive identity. I think people have made that point in the chat. We don't seem to be doing that at the moment. But I think sticking with the sort of my area of cooperation between opposition parties trying to get the government down, I think the lessons are build good personal relationships with the people in the opposite party. Uh, obviously, the leaders are important, but not just that. I mean, Robin Cook was really important uh, in the in the Cook-McClendon talks and in general in re relationships with the Lib Dems and Labour in the 90s. Um, so build good personal relationships over a long period of time. Identify a number of issues where you can clearly reach agreement. 
like the Cook McGannon talks, um, where you're going to be different from the government, where the government is not going to do this, but where the two parties can agree, and just be different on everything else and be very clear about having a distinctive identity on other topics so that you're not submerged within the general sort of anti-government move. Thank you very much. And to lead us to the end, uh, Mark, you can have the final say. And uh, well, I just want to say thank you to like say everyone who's on here, everyone who's watching on Facebook, um, to those who are listening to this back on podcast. Thank you very much for downloading. But Mark, you can have the final say in this debate. Uh, what lessons are you going to take as party president? So uh, going forward, how do we how do we learn from it? How do we get better from it? And how you know there's no such thing as a failure if you learn from it. So how do we learn from it? Um, I think there are two lessons I would draw. Uh, one is the importance of actually things like this session that we've just done and hopefully other things like it in that there is a lot of uh, historical evidence and experience and um, maybe, sorry, I shouldn't really refer to Kirsty as history in that sense, current evidence and experience, but there's a big, a big body of evidence we can draw on about what works and what doesn't work. And it's there's no reason why somebody who's joined the party in the last couple of years and perhaps particularly if they're a member say in England and so they don't have that you know perspective of say seeing you know a Lib Dem minister in in, in the media that you say do have if you're a member in Wales you know if there, there's no reason why you should know much of that sort of evidence that we've talked about so it's really important that to get our decisions right in future that we in that sense have a continuing sort of program of internal discussion and sort of mutual self-education. Um, and I think the particular point that I guess I have learned from thinking about these issues in the last couple of years is that traditionally we have treated what would our red line be if there's a hung parliament, assembly, senate, whatever, as if the red lines are some really secret thing. You know, you have, you know, you, maybe if you're really lucky, you get to know who are the people who are in the room with the leader to discuss what the red line would be. But the political lesson is your red lines have to be consistent with what the public has associated you with campaigning on prior to polling day. And therefore, whilst there is a necessary degree of confidentiality around some, you know, pre-election preparations, actually, the red lines can't be just this secret thing off in a off in a super squirrel secret basement somewhere. They have to very much flow from it almost has to flow the other way that you might work out what they are and then infuse that back into decisions about, you know, what motions we have at conference, what campaigns we're running in the spring of each year in the run up to the May elections and so on, because it has to be a, a whole party operation, not a secret elite somewhere in a locked room operation. And with that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you all for your attendance. Uh, as a, as a quick plug, I'd like to uh, plug uh, Mark Pack's, obviously, Liberal Democrat Newswire. Do go subscribe to it. It is a fantastic source of information for all things Lib Dem. I have to give a plug to the Lib Dem podcast, which you can follow, you can download. It's on YouTube. It's on Facebook. You can get it from all your good podcast providers and follow it at Lib Dem Pod. My name has been uh, John Potter. Thank you all so much. I'll give a big round of applause as well to our panellists. I just thought that it's been, they've been so good to Duncan, Polly, Kirsty and even Mark, you know, they've all been absolutely fantastic and given up their time to do and do these debates. So we will have many more of these coming forward. If you've liked it, do let us know. 
as well. You've all been emailed with my stuff. Give us some feedback. What have you made of this event? Do you want to see more of these in the future? So thank you so, so much. Do all of you stay safe. Have a wonderful weekend. And uh, I just hope England rugby has a good bounce back this week. So have a great time and we'll see you all very soon. Thank you. Bye now. <laughs>